we have really come to love the people of Faith Center. I can't tell you how much we love you so much. You're so easy to love. We came to Faith Center about uh, 10 years ago. I don't know where the times went, but it was 10 years ago. It was in 2004 that uh, my wife and the two youngest boys came to Faith Center. Now they have grown and, and have left home. One is in the Army, the other one's in college. My how time flies. We came here because God just said so. He was doing a new thing in our life. And uh, although we had been pastoring for several years in Beloit, Wisconsin, up to that point, uh, the Lord had made it very clear that we were to spend the last or the next several years uh, in ministry with the two boys. And so I really made that my ministry over the next five years. And when we came to Faith Center, we, we certainly didn't announce it with trumpets that we had came from uh, a ministry in Beloit. We, we just kind of were on a sabbatical uh, there for uh, quite some time. And, you know, the text messages that I get from my boys today and the phone calls and the, and, uh, the times that we get to talk, I'm so happy I responded to the word of the Lord. Sometimes we think ministry is just within the church four walls, but I'm telling you, ministry begins at home. And I'm so grateful that I listened to the, to the Lord. But Apostle Lion, when we came here, we came really full of faith and hope and grace. And now as we depart, we, we depart even more full of hope and grace and faith. And uh, you played an integral part uh, of that, of course. I don't believe you can sit under this ministry for 10 years under Apostle's anointing and leave with the same level of faith that you came. You just can't do it. You'd have to be dead. <laughs> I also don't believe that you can sit under this uh, anointed worship for 10 years and leave with the same heart of worship that you came. Uh, on the way to church this morning, uh, I happened to be thinking, and I realized it's the end of March. It's the very last Sunday of March. We're about to close out March. And I looked at my wife and I said, I said, baby, I said, we, we came here. We were just kind of babies in the Lord when we came. We came like little lambs. We came in like little lambs. And how fitting that we would leave like a lion. I'm sure you've heard that one before. But again, it's, it's this level of anointing that's on our apostle that we're so grateful for and, and uh, the team here. Two of the greatest impartations, apostle, that, uh, that we take with us. Number one is the impartation of fatherhood. We have watched you be a father to this flock like no other minister I've ever met in my entire life. I say that with sincerity. You have fathered us so well. You're just an, a great shepherd. Thank you so much. And the other impartation really is the impartation of unwavering faith. Unwavering faith. We've watched you stand through the years when things weren't always the greatest, but we've watched you declare the vision of faith over Faith Center. It's no wonder this place is called Faith Center, is it? So a few years ago, the Lord began to say we would cast our net to the right side of the boat someday. And of course, we didn't have all the details. Um, we... we knew in our hearts that the Lord would birth the ministry through us, but we weren't, in, we weren't hasty to bring it to pass. We were patiently waiting upon the Lord. Things sometimes seem slow with the Lord, but other times he seems like he moves very rapidly. And of course, uh, as we were very grateful to serve in this ministry, specifically the Life Center, as you mentioned, and the altar ministry and different ways that we've had capacities to serve, it came time where the Lord began to say, your boys are grown, your ministry with them, You've completed that assignment. 
I just had you on hold for a little while. And now it's time to release you again. For two and a half years, we've been in Bible college in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin. And uh, it's, it's done so much to change our lives. Uh, it's, it, we're just so thankful for it. And the call really to, to minister began to come several years ago, even over there. And we just said, not this, it's, it just didn't feel right. It wasn't the right time. But when the Lord quickens that and awakens that in your heart, you know it's the right time and it's time to move back out. We believe, and I say it without blinking, that our ministry too will be an apostolic anointing. Yes. We don't want to just take everybody in and hold on to everybody. We want to send them out. We want to train them and equip them in every uh, facet of ministry and then send them back out into the world. Yes. And uh, so one of the word pictures that the Lord gave me about six weeks ago, about the time I sat down and, and wrote that letter to you, um, was when I was just a little guy, I was learning to ride a bicycle. And uh, I was in a foster home, actually, at the time. And I was just uh, probably about first grade. <laughs> this was before you had the knee pads and the helmets, you know. And, uh, and I remember my foster daddy pushing me down the sidewalk. It seemed like we were going Mach 1 on that little bike. He had the training wheels off. It was my turn to ride that bike. And I remember there came a point in time where I, I said, okay, daddy, let go. But there was still a part in my heart that says, daddy, don't let me crash and burn. So as, I was, as the Lord brought that back to my attention, I thought, Lord, I kind of feel like that little guy on the bicycle again. And Apostle Lion, I, you're that daddy that has said the training wheels are off now. And I'm releasing you to go out into the, in, the real, in the world of ministry. And I want to say thank you personally for teaching me how to ride a bike. I honestly want to say that. And I felt the Lord say there'll, there'll come a time uh, in the near future, in the quietness of your study, even at home, that he's going to bring to your, your remembrance all the men and women of God that have come through here, one at a time, their faces are going to come before yours. And you're going to say with your own lips, I taught him how to ride a bike. I taught her how to ride a bike. I taught them how to ride a bike. I taught them all how to ride bikes. And we want to say thank you. Could you just honor your apostle tonight? Just honor your apostle tonight. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. We so thank you, Apostle Lyon. You may be seated. When I look across a room this size, uh, there's a realization that comes to my mind. The more people you add, the more challenging it becomes to find a common denominator. The common denominator is in this room, every single person has a dream. Man, woman, boy, girl, everybody has a dream. In other words, what I'm saying is you have this, you have something that you're believing God for. Something that you're standing in faith for. Maybe it's a financial breakthrough. Maybe it's a, a, a breakthrough in your body. Maybe it's in the way of a relationship. But every single person has a dream. And have you ever noticed that sometimes the religious people will come up to you? And I, I've done it before too. I don't do it anymore. But they'll say, brother, you just need to pray harder. 
Hey, let me ask you a question. What about when you don't feel like praying harder? I don't know if I'm talking to anybody in here tonight, but there's people that just don't feel like praying harder anymore. How about when you don't know how to pray harder? And what does exactly praying harder look like? What does that look like? Does that mean you get up earlier in the morning and you pray? <laughs> does that mean you pray longer? Does that mean you, you just grin and bear it when you pray? Does that, is that praying harder? That's what Ruth says. <laughs> Listen to me. There are more miracles that you see in the Bible that are, that are manifested through a simple act of faith. Just a simple act of faith. I'm reminded in John chapter 21. It's a story. Uh, let me paint the picture for you. Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. And the disciples have been scattered abroad just exactly the way he said it would happen. Peter one day is hanging out with some of his dis disciple friends. And he says to them, let's go fishing. Or he says, actually, I'm going fishing. He said, I'm going fishing. In other words, what he was really saying is, I'm going back to my life of fishing. And the disciples that were present with him said, we're going with you. And the Bible says that they all climbed into a boat and set out on the Sea of Galilee. But the Bible says that they fished all night long and caught nothing. I thought about this when I was a little guy in school. I had a best friend named Ben. And Ben and I were kind of like a almost like a Tom Sawyer and a Huckleberry Finn. We were mischievous little guys. We didn't get into a lot of trouble, but that's kind of the way we were. But we spent a lot of time fishing. And there were times where we would go out and we would spend the entire day and we wouldn't catch anything. So I understand fishing all day long and not catching anything. There were also times where you wouldn't even get a nibble. We would throw everything that we had and we couldn't catch a thing because of weather patterns or cold fronts coming in or something like that. But the weird thing about this story is these guys aren't fishing with rods and reels and hooks. They're fishing with nets. Did you ever realize that fish don't have to be hungry when you're using a net? They just have to be present? Did you ever think about it that way? So you have to ask yourself, where were the fish? Where's the fish at? It's almost like Jesus uh, that morning, because he is on the shore now in the story, you know that. It's almost like he was on the shore and he, said, he, he got down toward the water and said, here, fishy, 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 fishy. And all the water began to boil and every single fish in the Sea of Galilee said, Whoa. hey, so there's something supernatural going on when you can't catch even a minnow with, with a net all night long. And these are trained fishermen. And he said, listen, guys, to the fish. There's going to be a boat on the water tonight and it's going to have a bunch of crazy guys in it. And whatever you do, stay away from that boat or you will be meeting George Foreman in the morning. He says, he says, stay away from the boat. And so they fished all night long and they caught nothing. Let's change scenes for a second. The next morning, the sun is rising. The disciples have spent all their energy fishing. Can you see them in the boat now? They're not as enthusiastic. Their muscles are spent. They're delirious. They're tired. 
They're hungry. They need a shower. They're disillusioned. And then someone on the shore, that's Jesus, but they don't recognize it's Jesus yet. He yells out to me, he says, friends, have you caught anything? It cracks me up. They say, no. Nope. You ever notice when you're all beat up, you just give short answers? No. Nope. He says, cast your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some fish. And they said, okay. And they casted one cast, one cast on the right side of the boat. And they caught a net full of fish, 153 to be exact. John got the revelation. He said, it is the Lord. Peter jumped in the water and he swam to the shore. What is the essence of that story? Now listen, what I'm about to say to you is not Bible doctrine, but it is Bible principle so that you won't forget this. How many disciples were there originally? There were 12. How many went fishing that day? Seven. Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, and two other disciples, the Bible said. If there were 12 disciples originally, and there are only seven now, that means five are missing. That's good math, isn't it? Five disciples are missing. Five is always the biblical number for grace. Always. So what's missing? Grace is missing. See, in the absence of grace, you will work your fingers to the bone, and you'll still come up empty. It takes the grace of God. So there's seven disciples that are in that went fishing. When I looked at seven, seven has a double meaning for the number. It means perfection and it means rest. See, like God rested on the seventh day. When you run those together, it literally means perfect rest. And here's the nugget God dropped in my heart. Jesus represents grace. He doesn't just have grace, he is grace. It's like God. He doesn't just have love. He is love. Jesus is the embodiment of grace. And when grace, or when the perfect rest, which is representing the disciples, when they responded to the message of grace by faith, by faith, they had to cast the net. And so there was an element of faith involved. When perfect rest responded to the message of grace, the miracle manifested. The dream came true when it responded. Years ago, I worked for Motorola in uh, Harvard, Illinois. And the, we had about 40 people that worked on our line. And one day our supervisor came out and she, and she called the team together and she said, I've got a question for you. And if anybody can come up with the answer to this question, she said, I'm going to give each of you an extra 30 minutes on your lunch break next week. So we really wanted to figure out the answer to this question, except she says, I'm not going to give you any, any hints or any clues. The question she gave us, now Life Center people, if you're here, be quiet now, because I know I told you this before. The question was, what is the first thing that you know? We started guessing like crazy. In fact, we... 
uh, asked the other lines to help us. So we had about 150 to 200 people trying to guess the answer to that question. What is the first thing you know? I said, well, what do you mean? When you come to work? Not giving you any clues. You mean about Motorola, about the phone? What are you talking about? No clues, no framework. You ever tried to work with something with absolutely no framework? It's frustrating, isn't it? And so we're all kind of guessing like crazy folks. You know, we've got the other lines. So we've got about 150 to 200 people trying to guess the answer to this question. It's not coming. I'm coming up with what I think are brilliant answers, but they're all wrong answers. And finally, I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, you know the answer to this puzzle. And if you share the answer to this puzzle with me, I will make sure you get open praise. I think that's a prayer he likes to answer. I said, I'll make sure you get open praise. There was an answer that came to my head and I said that that's got to be it. It was good. I just said, I just prayed, but it was still a wrong answer. You see, what God was trying to do is teach me, you need to get out of the way when you ask me to do something. And so we guessed and we guessed and guessed. And about four o'clock that day, we, we quit at 4.30. About four o'clock, I got up to do my end of the day responsibilities. At this point, I had taken my hands completely off of it. I'm not guessing this anymore. And when I fell into perfect rest, now watch what happened. I took three or four steps away from my desk and I found myself humming out loud a song. Do you know what the song was? It was the theme from the uh, Beverly Hillbillies. I'm not kidding you. And, and I stopped and I said, you know, the first thing you know, Jed's a millionaire, you know? Some of you guys aren't old enough to know that song. So I stopped and I said, that can't be it. That's silly. That can't be it. About that time, there was a, a coworker walking by and I said to her, can, can you go ask our supervisor if this is the answer? Oh, Jed's a millionaire. Well, she went and she didn't come back. And of course, at 4.30, our supervisor called us all together. And she said, somebody came up with the answer to the, my question. At this point, she hasn't revealed who it is. So I'm thinking, it's possible it could have been me. But my heart is starting to beat really fast because I remember what I promised the Lord. Now I've got all these eyeballs staring. And finally, she looks over at me and she says, Mark, what is the first thing you know? And at the top of my lungs, I said, God is good. Isn't that what you'd have said, Pastor Felix? Amen. And I said, and, oh, Jed's a millionaire. You see, when I finally took my hands off of this thing and I put all my trust in the Lord, it came so easy. So easy. When perfect rest responded to the message of grace, the answer manifested. That's such a principle. And, and this was, again, 15, 16 years ago, and I've never forgotten that. That I have to get out of the way and let God do a work. In John chapter five, verses one through nine, sometime later, and I want you to take what I've just said there and transition that over here into this story. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, 
One who was there had been an invalid for 30 and eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Don't you just wish the doctors would be that? <laughs> don't you just wish they would do that? You just want to get well? You don't need medication. You don't need mutilation. You need some meditation on the word of God. Yeah. Yeah. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Powerful story. Verse 1 says, sometime later, Jesus went to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. When I read that first scripture, there were two words that kind of climbed up out of my heart. They were the words Jerusalem and the word feast. The word Jerusalem literally means the city of peace. Or another way to say it, it's the city of rest. You see, that's what Jesus wants us. He wants us to rest while he's doing the work. Jesus said it's a finished work. I've done it all. He wants us to rest. The city of peace, the city of rest. You know what the opposite of peace is? It's conflict. And that's a tool that the enemy uses so often, conflict. He, he brings it in the form of, uh, of guilt and shame and condemnation and, and so many other ways. But he wants to bring conflict. And Jesus is saying, no, it's peace. It's rest. In fact, you see him all throughout the scripture. He said in, uh, in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, he said, he said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said in John 14, 27, he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth. He's saying, rest I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto thee. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Yeah. Troubled is, is just worried. You're, we get worried hearts sometimes and, and fearful hearts, and they're, they're, they're just the robbers of our peace. And it says that he came, he says that he went up to Jerusalem for a feast. The word feast literally means to take pleasure in or to feed upon. And I heard the word of the Lord say to me, Mark, start with you and then you can tell other people, but feed upon things, take pleasure in things that bring peace. <laughs> Isn't that so simple? Because everything else is working in this world against taking our peace. God says, feed upon things that bring peace. Take pleasure in it. What do we feed upon? We feed upon the message of his goodness. We feed upon the message of his grace and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness. When you start feeding on that kind of stuff right there, I'm going to tell you something. There'll be no place for conflict. In fact, there's a, there's a story in Luke chapter 8, verses 22, I think through 25 or something like that, where J Jesus had been preaching and he decides, he says, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And they got in a boat. Remember that? And he fell asleep in the bottom of the boat. And the disciples were managing for a while, but the storm really came up. And, and it came a point in time where they, they, they felt like they were going to lose control of the boat. And they cried out and they, and they woke up Jesus and they said, Master, don't you care? We're going to drown. And Jesus woke up. Can you see? I mean, he's in the bottom of the boat. That means water's coming over in the boat, Right. And he's sloshing around in the bottom of the boat, but he's sound asleep. And he gets up and he, and the Bible says he rebukes the wind and the wave and all. What did he do? Did he say, I rebuke you, wind and waves? No. He said, peace, be still. And all grew still. We think that's a great miracle, don't we? We'd like to be able to do that, wouldn't we? 
You know what? The greater miracle is being able to sleep in the midst of all that. Being able to rest in a storm like that. I'm not saying chaos is not going to come your way, but in the midst of that, when you know who you are and you know your purpose and you know who's called you, you can learn to rest in the middle of those kind of situations. Come on, Robin, help me preach tonight. Yeah, now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool. Now we're not talking about the kiddie pool here now, folks. This is a big pool. In fact, the, the pools, there was a North Pool and a South Pool, and these pools were larger than football fields. And they were 80 foot deep. You ever feel like you're just in over your head sometimes? You ever feel that way? Well, all the person had to do was get in the pool when the angel came down and stirred the water and whoever got in next was healed. And Jesus came along and said, wait a minute now. That's the way it kind of worked under the law. But you know what? I've got a different way of doing things. In the pool, uh, it's, it's in what they call the area of Bethesda. Do you know what the name Bethesda means? It means the house of goodness. It has a multiple meaning. House of goodness, the house of blessing, the house of mercy, and the house of grace. Do you get that from Bethesda? That's what it means. Here's these guys, they're laying, these impotent folks, the lame, the blind, the, the invalids. They're laying in the house of Bethesda. Except what's happening is all this conflict has been coming against them over the years, against their bodies, against their minds. And I'm going to tell you something, it will pull you out of peace so quick. Even when you're sitting in the house of goodness and blessing. Oh, thankfully, Jesus came along. And the Bible says that they were surrounded by five covered colonnades. What did I say five? Five always represents grace. Here's this grace covering them over all the time. You know what? Let me say something. The house of blessing and the house of goodness is on the inside of us. When Jesus saved you, he moved in, folks. He moved in. The house of goodness and blessing and grace and mercy is already on the inside of you, yet we keep looking to the outside for something to come in when we ought to be looking to the inside for it to manifest in our bodies. Just listen for the word of grace and respond to it. And I'm going to tell you something. You're going to see your miracle come. One of the guys that have been laying there, you know, I'm trying to figure out what this might have looked like in the house of Bethesda and around these pools. You know, when we were kids, you, you watched what your parents watched. Do you remember that? Is anybody in here old enough to remember that? You got about three channels and you watched what your parents watched. My mom liked to watch Lawrence Welk and she liked to watch Hee Haw. So we watched it or we didn't watch anything. Man, we might need to go back to those days. I don't know. But she would watch this Hee Haw and they, they, were, they always had this scene where these guys are laying around picking their teeth. They got the hound dog. Even he's lazy and falling asleep. And they would sing that song that if it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony. Does anybody remember that song? Gloom and agony on me. That's what it looked like at the Pool of Bethesda. See, their minds got paralyzed because all these years of this conflict in their life. And the Prince of Peace happens to stroll in. My, 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 my. The Prince of Peace happens to stroll in one day. And he said there was a guy that had been laying there, or at least been in that condition, for 38 years. Listen, folks, when you see numbers and names in the Bible, it means something. It means something. Look at it. The number 30 literally translates as the right moment of time. 
And that's what this word is about right now. It's about the right moment of time. That's what that word means. Number 30 means the right moment of time. When I look back in Genesis, in chapter 37 through chapter 50, you meet a man by the name of Joseph. Joseph is a type of Christ. Joseph is the 11th son of a man named Jacob. Joseph is, Joseph is a great guy. He's 17. Remember you talking about that this morning, Apostle? He's 17 years of age, and the Bible says his daddy loved him more than any of the other boys. Now, you know you're going to have trouble when that's going on. And because of that, the Bible says his older brothers hated him, and they were jealous of him. And then one day, Joseph had a dream. He said, and he went and told it to his brothers. He said, I, we were out in the fields uh, Binding sheaves, and my sheaf rose up, and the 11 sheaves uh, bowed down at my sheaf. Boy, can you, can you imagine the stare of their brothers? They, he, they probably stared a hole right through them. And the Bible says they hated him all the more. You've got to be careful sometimes who you tell your dreams to. I'm telling you, not everybody will appreciate it, even, appreciate it, even sometimes your own brothers and sisters in the Lord. They won't value it and treasure it the way you should and do. And the Bible says they hated him all the more. And then you know what? He had another dream. He had another dream. This time, it was the sun and the moon and 11 stars all bowing down before him. That represented his mom and his daddy and his 11 brothers. And the Bible says they hated him all the more. He was the pet. You know, don't we always start off, we preach about Joseph. We always talk about him going from the pit to the palace. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Pit to the palace. Listen, before he went in the pit, he was the pet. He was, in the, he was the pet to the pit to the palace. Listen, there's going to be some ups and downs in life. You just got to get used to it. But you've got to let a word rise up in you when you've got situations going on in your life and declare, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. No weapon formed against me can prosper. I am the redeemed of the Lord. So, Daddy sent the, the ten brothers off to graze the, the sheep and the, the, the cattle in a distant land. And they've been gone for several days. And, and then Daddy says, you know, Joseph, you better go check on your brothers and see how they're doing and bring word back to me. <laughs> and so Joseph left and he, and, he, and he went and he found his brothers. And when they saw him come into him, they said, let's kill that dreamer boy. Listen, folks, I'm going to tell you something. When God gives you a dream... I'm going to tell you something. God has given me dreams and nothing, I just declare, nothing is killing the dream that God has given me. If he took time to give me the dream, I'm telling you, nothing is killing that dream. And so the Bible says when he got closer, they said to each other, hey, let's kill him. <laughs> let's throw him in the pit and let's tell daddy some wild beast tore him apart. And then Reuben spoke up. Reuben's the, the oldest son. You, you, you got to love those firstborns, don't you? <laughs> and he said, no, let's not kill him. Let's just, uh, let's just go ahead and throw him in the pit. I, I love the firstborns. They just have a way of keeping the family intact. I don't know about you. They're like the liaisons in the family. My daughter, Sarah, uh, you know, we've got, she's got four younger brothers, and she's like that liaison keeping the family intact all the time. It's just something about the firstborn nature. And so they throw him in the pit and there's some Ishmaelites coming by and they said, you know, I got a better idea. Let's go ahead and sell him. And they sold him. And you know what? He was transported to Egypt to a man, a man by the name of Potiphar. And he started serving in the palace and, and, and prospered like crazy. 
And then his wife came in, and, and the Bible says about Joseph, he was well-built and handsome. <laughs> Apostle Lion, let me tell you something. I've watched you send people out of here that were well-built and handsome, and thank you for doing that. I'm talking about in the spirit realm. Amen. He was well-built and handsome. And she noticed that, and she, she tried to, to get him to like her. I'm trying to tame this down because we got children in here. She tried to really get him to like her, and he didn't want no part of that. And so he got thrown in prison. Now we went from the pet to the pit to the palace to the prison. There's just some ups and downs. But you know what? While he was in prison, he served with all of his heart because he thought nothing is going to kill the dream that's inside of me. God has taken the time to give me two dreams. It's going to happen. And he served with all of his heart. And one day the, the Pharaoh had a dream. He couldn't interpret it. Nobody could interpret it. And so he, he was telling it to the cupbearer. And the cupbearer said, you know, today I'm reminded I'm, I'm kind of short-sighted. But I met a man when I was in prison that can interpret dreams. Let's bring him out. King said, send for him. And when he came out, Joseph interpreted his dream. Joseph was promoted that day to prime minister of Egypt. And I love what chapter 41, verse 46 says. And it says, when this took place, Joseph was 30 years of age. What did I tell you 30 meant? It means the right moment of time. When you think things are not working out for you, I'm telling you, God is making things work out for you. It was the right moment of time for Joseph to come forth. As we fast forward into the Old Testament, we find a man by the name of David. Heard his name this morning too. David. He's a man after God's own heart, the apple of God's eye. What a great guy. He's the eighth son of a man by the name of Jesse. And Samuel goes to anoint one of Jesse's sons. Except God didn't tell him which son to anoint. Do you, remember, do you remember reading that? Am I in the book? Yeah. He didn't tell him which son to anoint. Now, see, that's just the way God works sometimes. He'll just say, listen, go and I'll just, you just, just listen to me every moment. I'm not going to download everything in the morning so that you got the total blueprint for the day. I want you to get in touch and in tune with listening to me every moment of the day. And so he went to Jesse's and had the, the oldest son pass before him. He said, that ain't him. <laughs> the next son, that ain't him either. The next son, that ain't him. Finally, all seven sons had passed before him. And, and, and the prophet Samuel said, none of those. You got any more kids? We've got, I, well, I got one. Where is he? He's out there in the, in, taking care of the sheep. Go get him. And we ain't sitting down until he comes back. And so when they brought David in, it didn't take Samuel very long because he heard the word of the Lord. Anoint him as king. Anoint him as king. Josephus says David was about 10 years of age when that took place. He was just a young guy. Now, he was about 10, 12 years of age. Do you know what got in David's way? Everything. A lion, a bear, a giant. Even Saul got in the way. Now, can you imagine as you're trying to make your dream work? And I'm telling you, don't try to make your dream always work. Just keep trusting in God. Keep trusting in the Lord. You know, it's a distraction sometimes to try to make things work. Just go about doing your your daily thing with the Lord, listening every moment, spontaneity, listening to God. What has he got to say? And, and Saul's in the way. He's the one that's anointed king. It might take 
40 or 50 years for Saul to get out of the way. And then Saul's got a son named Jonathan. Jonathan surely will take the throne next. So can you imagine, sometimes when we get a dream, we think, man, I must have missed God. This doesn't seem like it's working out exactly like it should have. I'm telling you, stay your course because that dream is going to come true at some point in time. It's going to happen. And you know what? I wish I could say more about David, but I'll run out of time. But David, it says in 2 Samuel chapter, I think, 5 verse 4, David was 30 years old when he became king over Israel. 30 years old. You know what he was? It was at the right moment of time. You think that's a coincidence? I sure don't. It was the right moment of time for him. Joseph came to save Egypt. David came to save Israel. But there's another man in the New Testament, the one that laid his life down for you and for me. His name is Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Come on, Jesus. Just that very name alone makes me happy. And you know what it says about Jesus? We don't see much about him. Two, three, four years of age. And he kind of falls off the map for a while. And then suddenly at 12, he's in the temple teaching. But we don't know anything about his 13th birthday. We don't know anything about a sleepover. We don't see nothing, nothing, nothing. All of a sudden, we find him at a wedding feast in Canaan. And they ran out of wine. And his mother comes up to him and says, Son, <laughs> we're out of wine. And he says to her, why are you bothering me with this stuff? And he says to his own mom, it's not my time. That's verse 4, chapter 2, Luke, verse 4. It's not my time. Why are you bothering me with this stuff? But what's really strange is three verses later, he says to his disciples, fill the water pot. What happened between verse 4 and verse 7? He's already said it's not my time. I'm going to tell you what happened. Now, I can't prove it from Scripture, but I can prove it from principle in the Scripture, and that is this. The Bible says that Jesus did nothing or said nothing apart from what he saw his father do or, or heard his father say. Is that the word? He did nothing. So somewhere after, I believe, mom said, son, fill the water pots or, you know, they need some more wine. He said, it's not my time. But then I think he probably walked away and said, daddy, What do you say? And daddy said, son, it is your time. Fill the water pots and watch the And you know what the Bible says? That was the first of his miracles. The very first of it. And you know how old Jesus, the Bible says in Luke chapter 3, verse 23 was? When he began his ministry, the Bible says he was about 30 years of age. I don't find that coincidental. It was the right moment of time for God to release his power and his salvation upon this earth through his son. My Lord. Now the number eight, let's deal with that very quickly. I, we, we're talking about 30 and now this guy had been there for 38 years. The number eight literally means to superabound. You remember when we came through the year 2008, we called it the year of more than enough? You remember that? Because we picked up on what the Bible says it is. It's the year of superabundance. We called it the year of double portion. We called it the year of uh, intense blessing. But it was the year to superabound. How do you superabound? And I heard the Lord say to me, 
what number precedes the number eight? And I said, it's the number seven. He said, where do you hear grace first mentioned in the Bible? It's in Genesis chapter six, where it says Noah found grace. Isn't it interesting that Noah's name translates as rest? <laughs> rest found grace. It's when you are resting in what God has said to you, not necessarily trying to make it happen. I'm going to tell you something. It's going to manifest. Praise God. Amen. I have to read something here, and then I'm going to close. There's something very personal that we want to thank Faith Center and Life Center for. And I'm not talking about just myself and my wife, but our entire family. What a blessing this ministry has been to us. I don't know if any of you have ever had children that couldn't have children. But when a woman realizes kind of her mission in life is to raise up children, that's very painful. It's painful to watch. And year after year after year, we watched our daughter Sarah try to have children, and it just wasn't happening. We were standing in faith. We had some all-night prayer. I mean, we were praying hard. <laughs> and it just wasn't happening. What I'm holding in my hand is an edited version of a letter that Sarah wrote to Faith Center several years ago. I want to read it for you. My husband Jason and I have been married for nine and a half years. This was written in 2009. We've been married for nine and a half years. We've been trying to have children for nine of those years. We tried infertility treatments without success and even had an adoption that fell through. We felt that God told us that we would have children, but we weren't sure how that was going to happen. We felt God lead us in the direction of becoming foster parents, so we took the training, became foster parents, and we've been fostering for a little over three years. We've been caring for children between the ages of newborn and two years old. During this time, we've prayed that the Lord would bless us and allow us to adopt at least one of the children we have cared for. That has not happened as of yet. On Friday, September 18th of 2009, my two-year-old foster son was returned to his biological family per court order. He came to us when he was just four days old. Our hearts were breaking as we were forced to say goodbye. We had raised this child for two years and been told that this case would most certainly end in adoption. His being returned was very sudden and unexpected. This caused us to question what we believed God had told us that when we would have children. The weekend our foster son left was also the weekend of the Cindy Jacobs conference at Faith Center. After nine years of waiting for children and now losing yet another child, my faith was weak. I wanted to believe that God was at work. I longed to believe he still had a plan, but I was broken, and I needed him to remind me that he can do anything. On Sunday morning, September 20th, my husband awoke with the flu, but I decided I was desperate for God to make sense of our situation and that I wanted to attend church. During the service, Cindy Jacobs said that if anyone had been trying to have children, children and were unsuccessful to please come forward, my husband was at home sick, and we had just lost our foster son three days before, but I went forward. See, there's the act of faith. Cindy prayed for me and broke off a generational curse. Cindy had mentioned that we had been harassed. She was so very right. 
We felt so broken, but the word Cindy spoke that day brought hope and comfort. This brings us to a Saturday at the end of October when my dad was volunteering at the Life Center. There was a woman there who he had seen before. She was looking for a couple of things, and he asked if he could help her or if she would just like prayer. She said she just needed those items and she would be fine. My dad noticed she wasn't as cheery as she had been in the past, and he must have felt the nudge of the Holy Spirit to ask her again if she needed prayer. She then turned around and told him that she was pregnant and couldn't find anyone to adopt her baby. He stopped in his tracks and asked if she was serious. She said yes, and he told her that he knew of a Christian couple that would most likely take the baby as in, in adoption. She said that she was interested, uh, so he continued to tell her the background about the desire for them to have children. She said she needed a couple days to think about it. Four days later, she called my dad and said that she wanted to meet us. He gave her my phone number and told me that she was waiting for my call. She told him we needed to meet soon because she was due November 23rd of 2009 with a baby girl. We were ecstatic, but we had been down this road before and the birth mother had changed her mind. We were excited and scared, but only weeks before Cindy had broken a generational curse. Could this actually happen this time? I talked on the phone with the birth mother and she was excited to meet us. We agreed to meet the next day. We sat with her for four hours that day and at the end she looked at us and said, you are exactly what I've been praying for. You are the family for this baby. Those have been the words we had longed to hear for so long. For the next week we talked every day on the phone. I even went to a prenatal appointment with her and was so blessed to hear our baby girl's heartbeat for the first time. Needless to say, it brought tears to my eyes. Then, come on, God is a then kind of God, isn't he? He's a then kind of God. Then on November 1st, 2009, which was a Sunday, and exactly six weeks to the day that Cindy had prayed over me, our baby girl was born. Only six weeks after prayer, and I was holding my daughter in my arms for the first time. I was blessed enough to even be in the room and to see her enter this world. What a perfect little miracle she was and still is. We named our daughter Mila, M-I-L-A, Mila, Renee Gore's line. Mila means miracle or favored. She is our miracle and we want all the glory to go to God and we want everyone to know that miracles are really in motion at Face Center. Keith, can you show that picture? I want you to see the picture of Mila. That's Mila. Thank you, Keith. You see, when, she, when they came to the end of themselves, and they said, we're no longer trusting in infertility treatments, we're no longer trusting in ourselves, we're no longer trusting in the natural things, it was then that grace could speak into their hearts and arrange every single thing to bring that little Mila to our family. We are so grateful, Faith Center. We are so grateful for little Mila. And we're so grateful that she came from this ministry, Faith Center and Life Center. Apostle Line, I'm going to have you come and do what you do well. And thank you so much, Faith Center. God bless you.